Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. How are you, everybody? Very democratic of you to come out on a Tuesday night to participate because apparently that's the problem. Not enough of us are doing that, so good on you. Uh, we're going to have a, a couple of hours of uh, good, lively, entertaining fun. Evan Moorhead from the ALP is on his way and uh, we'll be sitting there when he gets here. So we'll make a grand entrance for him. He'll weave his way through as he makes his way in from the traffic. So welcome to you all. I'll, I'll save the um, introductions to our of our guest speakers, panelists, until uh, Evan gets here, until we do other bits of housekeeping. But let me begin by uh, acknowledging the people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet this evening and pay respect to elders past and present. Let me also take a, a few moments to tell you about where you are. You're at a pub and we're going to talk politics. The New Farm Neighbourhood Centre has been hosting politics in the pub for over 16 years and has covered a diverse range of topics. Politics in the pub is held four times a year and at each event attempts to address a contemporary issue important to the community of Brisbane. We are grateful for the generous support of the Brisbane Powerhouse and for the volunteers who make it happen. So maybe just a quick thank you to the Powerhouse and the, the volunteers. Excellent. For those using social media, who is social mediaing tonight? Uh, the hashtag is Pip New Farm. So politics in the pub, P-I-P New Farm, hashtag Pip New Farm. If any of you have had a chance already to check out the Facebook page, I did uh, send Sharla a couple of videos for your uh, entertainment and edification uh, to really illustrate uh, some of the issues that we are talking about tonight. Uh, one of the videos, if anybody wants to have a look a bit later on, not now, but if you want to have a little look later on, it illustrates uh, what can go wrong in parliaments when you have too many parties. And uh, it illustrates that fisticuffs, unfortunately, have come to prevail in some parliaments overseas. Not yet in the council chamber in Brisbane, Jonathan, <laughs> although there have been a few ejections of, uh, of uh, your uh, colleague, Nicole, your council colleague, Nicole, in recent times. But uh, some parliaments overseas have resorted to fisticuffs, so there is an interesting video on our Facebook page about that. Uh, also on the Facebook page is some fantastic illustration of wisdom from The Simpsons uh, about the, the two-party system in America. So, so please enjoy that if you have a chance. Now, we are also recording the audio of the evening, which will be available as a podcast check in with the event Facebook page or the Communify webpage for details in a week or so. So the way the night will work is that we will have a discussion up here for 45 minutes or so, and then we'll throw it open to the floor. There's one rule and one rule only, be nice. That applies to us up here and to you down there, and the whole night will go very, very well. When the time comes for questions from the floor later on, I'll be a bit more specific uh, about the rules. All right, time for introductions. Uh, Chris O'Brien is a senior, oh, you know that bit already. Uh, last shall be first. Evan Moorhead, ladies and gentlemen. Evan became Australian Labor Party State Secretary in 2014, having been the Assistant State Secretary from 2012. Evan was elected to the Queensland Parliament in 06 as the member for Waterford and was re-elected in 09. Prior to entering politics, Evan was a research officer for the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. For the middle left of the night, please welcome Evan Moorhead. 
Uh, Ellen Roberts is the Queensland lead organiser for GetUp, handling, campaigning and organising for GetUp in Brisbane. She joined GetUp in November 2015 after three years with the Mackay Conservation Group, campaigning on coal mining and reef protection. Ellen has a background in law and has worked for social change for over 20 years on environment, refugees and asylum seekers and workers' rights. Would you please welcome Ellen? John Slater is the executive director of the H.R. Nichols Society, a free market think tank aimed at promoting an industrial relations system that maximizes economic growth and promotes individual choice. John writes regularly for The Spectator Australia and has been published in the Australian Financial Review, Herald Sun and The Australian. He served previously as the president of the University of Queensland Liberal National Club and chair of the Ryan Young LNP. Earlier this year, John worked at the libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., and interned for former U.S. presidential candidate Chris Christie. Please make John welcome. And Jonathan Shree is the councillor for the Gab Award at the Brisbane City Council. He's a writer, musician, and community development worker. If things get a bit slack as the evening goes on, did you bring your uh, instrument of choice? Okay, Jonathan's volunteered to do a poem later, so um, that's a little bit of uh, a promise to come. He has a keen interest in democratic reform and cracking down on political corruption. Jono studied law and arts at UQ and believes that politicians should work to strengthen local communities rather than fragmenting them. Please welcome Councillor Jonathan Shree. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, and I'm sure most of you agree, Western democracy is basically in utter ruins. And we're here tonight to find out why and what we can do about that. Whose fault is it? It's the voters' fault. It's the voters' fault because they keep electing stupid politicians, bad parties, ridiculous parties. No, it's the voters' fault because they're not engaging. Actually, no, it's the politicians' fault because they're not engaging with the voters. Actually, it's the politicians' fault because they're not paying attention to the voters. Actually, it's the politicians' fault because they're not paying attention to white, blue-collar men who apparently are the reason Donald Trump got elected. Look, it's obviously somebody's fault, and if we can't leave tonight without pinning the blame on somebody, then we've all failed in our duties and wasted a good Tuesday night out. So what we're going to do is look at what's going on with modern democracy. We're going to look at fragmentation. We're going to look at political sloganeering. We're going to look at uh, whether minor parties are a good idea or a blight on the very reason that we exist. Whatever. We're going to get some uh, full and frank views. And I want to start, though, by just uh, warming up the vocal cords of our panelists. Let them just spend a few minutes saying hi and what they think about politics in Queensland, politics in Brisbane, politics further afield, where they think things are going badly, where they think things maybe are okay, and we'll take it from there. Evan, let's kick off with you. Where do you think things are at? Uh, you can take it if you want to. Um, thanks, Chris. Look, I think we should be really careful in not overstating the problem. Um, the starting point for this should be that we here in this room tonight are not normal people. Um, you know, you have chosen to give up your Tuesday night to dedicate it to a discussion about politics. Um, you know, there are... Um, the view that there are vast majority of people out there who are sitting at home 
weighing up whether the AFR editorial is the one that should determine their vote or whether it's the Australian or whether they should be reading an online blog. This is just not true. It never has been. For a lot of people, you know, they're busy taking their kids to football training, they're busy volunteering on the local PNC, they're busy you know, paying their mortgage, uh, and political engagement is something they do, uh, not something they take, something they do every three years, is something they do on a regular basis when they watch a couple of minutes of news on the TV, but they don't spend their Tuesday nights weighing up the pros and cons of voting for particular parties. Um, I think that uh, we're going through a significant period of change around the world, post-GFC, um, the, the level of political instability around the world has gone through the roof. We, you know, we're a country that had five changes of Prime Minister from the end of World War I, end, end of World War II, sorry, five changes of government from the end of World War II to 2007, and from 2007, we've had five Prime Ministers in five years. And I don't think there's any coincidence that that lines up with a period of significant economic change when people feel that there's um, the economic prosperity that they had in the, the, the years before that is not there now. And I think there are people looking to government for answers and governments are finding it harder and harder to provide those economic answers. Look, but I don't think all is broken. I do think there's lots of people out there who are engaged in politics. You know, our federal election campaign saw thousands of new volunteers out there knocking on the doors of people across Queensland, you know. Um, you know my favourite moment in the federal election campaign was seeing Wyatt Roy after the election um, say, you've got to give it to Labor, they won the ground war. Um, yes, there are lots of people who are disengaged and looking for third parties, but there's also more and more people who are volunteering to be active in politics. And I think that's a good sign. I don't think we should write that off and be all doom and gloom about the state of world politics. What do you think, Ellen? Well, I mean, certainly GetUp's experience reflects what Evans just said about political participation. I mean, we also saw in the last federal election record numbers of GetUp members um, choosing to get out on the streets. Um, we have an office just here down the road in New Farm and we're running phone banks every night with people coming in and, and talking to voters across the country and, and here in Queensland. So I think that interest in political engagement, GetUp has a million members, a million people who are really interested in politics in this country. But I also don't think that we can deny that there is disillusionment with the two major parties. I think that's something that is reflected, obviously, um, within voting patterns that we're seeing um, <clears throat> at the moment. And I think it's because people are seeing a political system that doesn't necessarily reflect their interests. I was looking at some statistics today and people see, um, think that corporations have too much power over our government and that politicians are essentially working in their own interests. Um, lots of Australians think that politicians are corrupt, which surprised me. I think Australia generally, internationally, is considered not to be a particularly corrupt country, but certainly the perception is out there. And when you have things like former Resources Minister Ian McFarlane, tomorrow is going to become head of the Queensland Resources Council, someone who's supposed to be representing the people of the country and then walks immediately out of a Resources Minister position into a cushy corporate job. You can see why that, there's that level of, of cynicism out there. Um, but again, I, I guess I would agree with Evan. I think that it's important not to conflate disillusionment with the electoral system and with the political parties, with the desire for political engagement and, and a better world. What do you think, John? Yeah, I'd certainly um, echo Evan's initial comments that it's, I think there's a great tendency to catastrophize, particularly in the heat of the moment, in the wake of people like Donald Trump being elected, people 
um, foreshadowing the end of democracy, the end of liberal democracy as we know it. I think that um, when we take a step back, um, what we might be seeing now in countries like Australia, the United States, even the United Kingdom, to a lesser extent perhaps with Brexit, is I think that there's a real latent dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I think that that's certainly coming off decades of prosperity, of people getting used to being better off materially year after year. And I think that there's a palpable sense at the moment that the economy isn't necessarily working for all people. It's working in the interests of some, but not others. And I think that that sense of unfairness that a lot of people feel really um, strikes, a, strikes quite a chord and is um, really quite a sense of a real, a real cause of discontentment. I think part of the problem, though, why that translates to uh, disaffection with the political system is I think that people's expectations of what government is going to do for them and what government should provide for them are perhaps too high. And I think that that is in large part because politicians have every incentive when elections come around to promise enormous things for people, um, promise hundreds of thousands of jobs, promise unlimited education funding, unlimited health funding. And I think basically politicians have done a really bad job of calibrating people's expectations. And so ultimately it's really not that um, unsurprising that people are disappointed. But I very much subscribe to the idea that people, uh, their satisfaction with politics will ebb and flow with the economy. Um, prior to the GFC, people in Australia were generally fairly satisfied with the standard of living. Things were going well. So given that um, even post-GFC, Australia's economy has recovered in a bit of a fractious way, some places doing a lot better than others, um, on that score, I think it's, it's not really a total coincidence that we're seeing that expressed in our political system. Jono. Thanks. Um, it probably won't surprise many people here to hear that I'm, I think our political system is pretty messed up, but I guess when I sort of start to analyze the problem, I think it's important not to consider our political system or the party polit political system or the parliamentary system in isolation from our broader social economic um, structures. And really, our, I no, no longer think there's a clear separation between the corporate sector and the political system. I think the two have become inextricably intertwined to the point where it's hard to tell where one stops and the other starts. And further to that, I think the failings in our current political system are largely symptomatic of failings in our broader economic system. So, like, I mean, we could spend all day dissecting the problems and probably everyone would be right. Like, yes, there's this problem of career politicians who've lost touch with the community. Yes, there's a problem with big business influence in political decisions and policy. Yes, voters are disengaged. I would tend towards the view that they're mindfully disengaged rather than naively disengaged from electoral politics. But all these little things are are part of the problem, and I think it's 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 lazy of us intellectually to say, there, that's the core of the problem, it's that one thing there, and we need to blame that. It's a really nuanced and complex mess, um, and to my mind, it starts with the problem of centralization of, of power and decision-making. So I, I would argue that as long as uh, a small group of people hold a lot of power in society, there's a temptation for them to become corrupted, and no matter who you elect, that's eventually gonna happen, and I think that's part of what we've seen over the last couple of decades in Australia. Do you have any optimism that things can be better? Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't get into this job if I didn't think it was at least salvageable. I think, um, like, I, I draw great hope and strength from the community movements I see on the ground. I draw great optimism from 
young people who are fiercely passionate and, and engaged and thinking critically. And, and I think there is a way out or a better way forward, but I think we need to start by um, recalibrating our understanding to what counts as success and how we define. Like for me, when I look at, because we were talking about this earlier, Chris was saying, how bad is the problem really? And I judge the effectiveness of a system by the results and the outputs. And when you look at how clearly we failed to get meaningful action on issues like climate change, how woefully inhumane our refugee policies are, like that shows me that our system is deeply, deeply flawed. These aren't superficial cosmetic issues. This is something structural and goes to the heart of our entire society. Evan, having heard that then, do you reconsider what you said that we should not overstate the problem? No, not at all. I, I think Jono is overstating the problem. Like, I think, um, you know, Australia, if you go around the world, like even, well, let's have a look at the UK. The UK is a country that has some of the greatest inequality, lots of people living in energy poverty, lots of people with a minimum wage of seven pounds. We live in a country that has, um, you know, universal health care, um, a minimum wage of seventeen dollars. You know, maybe our friends at the HR Nicholas Society don't like that, but um, you know, we have some of the the best social um, protections around the world. And I think Australia's got a um, has a robust democracy. Is there disenchantment in it? There always is, and always has been. And there's a job for politicians to make sure they're listening to that. But you know, as a country, I think we've done a pretty good job at having, you know, strong education, health. You know, fairness at work are part of our institutional structures. Can I respond to that really quickly? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I guess where we disagree then is that I think the, the high standard of living and the, the cool quality of life that a lot of us enjoy is largely predicated on the exploitation and misery of workers in other countries and migrant workers here in Australia and or on the exploitation and degradation of the environment. So when I, like, when I see homeless people in the street or I see like... Aboriginal communities that don't have clean drinking water. I'm like, well, at least, at least if we weren't fucking up the environment, I'd be like, okay, cool, I, I get it. But we are both screwing up the planet. We're polluting it on a per capita basis. We have one of the highest carbon emissions in the world. So we're, we're screwing that up and we also can't get inequality right. Like it's, it's 2016, we still haven't signed uh, proper treaties with Aboriginal peoples. Like, we stole this land and then we pat ourselves on the back because we have a good quality of life, but we haven't rectified those deeper ongoing problems. Okay, so perhaps unsurprisingly, we have disagreed on how bad the problem is. Some feel it's worse than others. Nevertheless, I think we all agreed that there are some things that, that could be better. What has GetUp discovered in the last four, five to ten years that people really want to get up about? Well, I mean, GetUp is a democratic organisation and we survey our members consistently, well, every year. Um, and we find climate change and the need to address climate change comes up um, for our members um, on an ongoing basis. And I think if we're talking about the political system, the failure of, of, of politics to deal with this very urgent crisis that's unfolding right now, 2016 again is going to be the hottest year on record, is clearly a gap. Um, and I think the way that we've responded on climate change does reflect deep corporate interests and it also reflects the need to have a kind of longer-term vision for society. So, so br bringing that into what we're talking about tonight is, is, is the feeling that the structure that we have in this country or this state or this city 
for politics does not address issues like climate change adequately. Yeah, and that's certainly why people get involved in third parties, in non-government organisations like GetUp. Um, so we are very political, we participate very actively in elections, and you know we attract people who want to see progressive governments of different stripes, but for whatever reason they decide not to get active with the political parties. It's because their support for those political parties is conditional on those parties doing the right thing. And I think that kind of sophisticated level of engagement in politics is something that we're certainly seeing um, within the get-up base. John, you've been involved in, in politics as, as a young person, and what are the things that motivate the, the young people that you've hung out with in, in the political movement? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, to be brutally honest with a lot of them, it's ego and self-interest. Um, I do think with some people... There's um, a bit of that in the media too, though. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, I think um, looking, looking kind of as well from a personality profile, it tends to attract precocious, argumentative people. Um, again, which is kind of par for the course, really. Um, I do think, though, that uh, like passion is obviously very important because if you do look even in youth political organisations, people realise that if you hang around for six or 12 months, you generally don't get anywhere. You need to hang around, devote a lot of time, a lot of hours. The pretenders get found out fairly quickly. So I think that, um, yeah, passion, and passion is, it sounds like a And those passionate people, are they getting, in your sphere of walking, are they getting involved in the traditional political system or third parties or, or other, other ways of expressing themselves? That's, that's um, a good point. I think uh, for the people I know, people who are interested in politics as a bit of a sport, people who are the type of people who watch Question Time, who watch 7.30, watch Insiders, they're getting involved in the political parties. But certainly what I noticed at university and even talking to some of my younger friends is even people who don't consider themselves as political types are people who are interested in ideas, interested in the world. And those types of people I'm noticing engaging a lot more in blogs, in alternative media sources online, in other think tanks, that type of thing. And so I think a lot of people, younger people do get a, quite a bad rap for being disengaged in politics. But if you talk to young people, they are engaged in social issues, economic issues. They do have opinions. They just necessarily, um, I guess, are understandably a bit distasteful towards the two-party paradigm. Who here would be prepared to put up their hand and say they voted for somebody other than the, the major parties at, at this year's federal election. That's interesting, Evan. What do, what do you... I mean, I think you've made the point that this is a, a very engaged are the, audience. Are the Greens a major party? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if not, why didn't we win? <laughs> this is clearly an accurate sample of society. What's that? <laughs> what do you... Um, what, what do you see as the future of the two-party two system? Is, is it entrenched forevermore in our country, do you think? Um, I think there's always going to be a key difference between those parties who want to provide a coherent, um, broad narrative for running a government and those who don't. Like, I think, um, with, you know, I think some of the battles you've seen, particularly in New South Wales Greens, is a battle about whether they should maintain a strong 10% or try and follow the Victorian Greens and build up 
a bigger presence. Like, I think for minor parties, um, there's a challenge of do they try and have a coherent vision for government and then risk alienating a um, committed voter base? Um, and third parties have always struggled in that. Hanson's always struggled in that. The Greens struggled in that. You know, the Democrats struggled in that. The Democrats were going really well until they took a stance and, um, on the GST and unfair dismissal and then the support base crumbled. Um, and um, well, I think GetUp has done a great job in activating lots of people, but GetUp is the smorgasbord of politics. Um, GetUp, you know, if you're interested in marriage equality, you can donate to the marriage equality campaign for GetUp, but if you don't support other elements of the campaign, you don't have to. Um, you know, GetUp don't provide, they provide a progressive campaign base around issues, and that's what's made them so um, attractive to young people, I think. Um, but they don't campaign to run a government. I think there will always be space for political parties, and you know, um, it may not necessarily be the same two political parties, but there will always be a strong space in our Westminster system for people who say, um, you know, we want to get 50% of the seats in Parliament and we want to run a government. I'll let Ellen respond to the get-up aspect first, but Jonathan, you go first responding to what uh, Evan said about... No, Ellen, um, you go first. I, I feel like I've talked enough already. Have you? So. No, I'll, I'll decide that. You go first. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> All right. No, I, I, I think, um, I, I, like, when we talk about why, is, why do we have a two-party system, you have to look at the actual voting system and the fact we don't have proportional voting. We have to look at the way political campaign financing works. Um, I, I tend towards the, the, the view that... Um, I mean, like... To put it bluntly, the major party's vote is collapsing, right? It is collapsing. Support is, like, I think the Labor Party had the lowest primary vote in like 50 years or second lowest. I don't, correct me if I'm wrong. Second lowest in 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 decades. Um, and I think really when like I, I hear this this argument, oh, it's harder when you're a party of government. You know, you have to make compromises. You that that's why like Labor does the tough job of of governing, and and all you minor parties just quibble and squabble on the sidelines, but. I think actually we need to rethink whether, are we actually trying to change government and acknowledge that our system has failed or are we trying to just sort of compromise and plot along? Because as, as soon as you capitulate to that sort of neoliberal imperative of um, satisfying everyone but not being willing to tax those big corporations and, and put the hard, hard word on the 1%, you're not going to be able to solve everyone, satisfy sure. everyone. I, I guess I was more wanting you to say what you think about whether where, where the Greens see themselves now, and maybe in ten years, do, do they see themselves being uh, one of the major parties, for example, that, that sort of thing? Where, where do you see for that me, going? For me personally, I I can't see the Greens being a major party if the rest of our political and economic system stays the same. Okay. Because for us to win power within the current economic system we would have to capitulate to too many of those, um, what I would call like flawed compromises within the system. Okay. I, I can imagine like major social change, people getting pissed off with the status quo, and then the Greens win in power on the back of some kind of social resurgence, yes. but it's, it's really hard to imagine how okay. we could win power without, yeah. Okay. Ellen, anything that Evan said about um, GetUp that um, sparked your interest? Well, I mean, I do get asked quite often, including by GetUp members, why don't we just become a political party? Um, and we have certainly decided not to do that as an organisation. And I think, I mean, Evan's right, I, but I also think that what that highlights is the importance of campaigning between elections to hold governments to account and to push them on issues of importance. I'm I mean, not saying it's a bad thing. 
yeah. I'm a it, but it's but I also think, say for example, you take we can have a false majority or an unrepresentative majority. Say, look at something like corporate tax cuts that Turnbull brought in this year, deeply unpopular um, with the Australian people, including those who voted for him, presumably, and something that we would we have been actively campaigning on and and would continue to do so. Um, but I, th I just was actually reading a really interesting article before I came here, um, just to go back to Jono's point about proportional representation, about the Trump phenomena, and they were comparing the rise of the right in Europe with um, the takeover by the far right of the Republican Party in the US, and they were suggesting, and I'm not sure at all that I agree with this, but that in situations where you have proportional representation and you give a voice to those fringe or extreme elements, that you avoid having something like the takeover of the right by by Trump and you actually express those within your political system. And so for a two-party system like we have in Australia, we have a lot of people who on either sides of the political spectrum are voting in ways that aren't reflected as they see in their parliament. Oh, just to respond to Ellen's point, I think it's definitely a, it's a common mischaracterisation of Donald Trump's values and his policies to characterise him as far right. I think that the labels of far right, far left, centrist and all that are inherently self-serving. If you really look at, drill down what Donald Trump represents, particularly within the context of the right of American politics, he's highly skeptical of free trade, which is an article of faith of virtually all purist, Tea Party Republicans, far right, whatever you want to call them. Um, his ideas on the international sphere um, are certainly very much out of step with the mainstream of the Republican Party and the true believers. Um, even looking at basically this whole idea of kind of a manufacturing renaissance, bringing back jobs from China, all that type of thing, it really is out of step with what you'd call a classical liberal economic theory, which if you look at the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, he really is the quintessential purist Republican. Um, Donald Trump basically has identified a group of voters who feel alienated, who feel they don't have their voices heard, and for good reason. There's people in America, um, the demographic which most voted for Donald Trump were people earning between $50,000 and $99,000 a year. So quintessential middle class. And in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania to a lesser extent, certainly Ohio, there's a palpable sense in those states that life was better for their parents than it is for them. Then they go onto Hillary Clinton's website and there's a list of subgroups um, for Hillary Clinton, and it's things like Latinos for Hillary Clinton, women for Hillary Clinton, and for, it's a bit of a cliche, but the white male who's been basically, feels like he's been working extremely hard for very little return for two decades. It's entirely unsurprising that he would go cast a vote for Donald Trump. So I think putting it on an ideological spectrum as such really miscalculates the process which has actually got Donald Trump elected. That brings me to what the Queensland electorate is facing. We're heading towards an election in the next year or, or in a bit. You'll be planning that election from, from the Labor Party's point of view, and I'm sure, Jonathan, you'll pr probably be involved in, in what the Greens do. Is there a feeling uh, that there is a growing voter base that is disgruntled, which is the, the, the word at the, at the moment, and that... Uh, parties, big or small for that matter, or medium, um, ignore the disgruntled voter at, at their peril? I think that's right. I think there is um, a group of people um, for whom their view of the world isn't left and right. It's us versus them, and they feel that they're not being considered in this discussion. 
Um, you know, they don't turn up to the powerhouse on a Tuesday night to debate politics. They just feel that no one's talking to them about their shared values. They, um, you know, um, there is um, a group of people who feel that um, the political debate isn't addressing the issues, you know, about their security of employment, about um, their um, prosperity, about, you know, the support they get. Like, um, and there's a job for all politicians to go out and firstly listen to those people, um, because sometimes the, the political system um, doesn't listen to those people. All four people who are talking here tonight are part of the political system um, who don't necessarily spend their days in Burfingari talking to working class people who are concerned about paying their mortgage. Um, and the second thing is, um, you know, we've got to get back to addressing um, those fundamental um, concerns about inequality um, that uh, come about from economic change, and that's what we're facing. People who feel that no one's listening to them and that the world is changing and they're getting left behind. Okay, so, so they're there. Ellen, have they always been there, though, or, or for some reason are there more of them now? Well, I mean, I think if you look at voting patterns, the number of people voting for third parties is definitely... Um, increasing for minor parties, I think that's certainly true. And, but is that, is that are they the ones who are just annoyed, disgruntled, or the ones who are passionately ideological about what's going on? Well, I mean, I'm sure they're not a homogenous group of people who choose to vote for the minor parties. Um, and I think, but I think it's also, I mean, it's it's a really interesting question about I think where this is coming from and something that. I think Evan's right, we are part of the political elite and it was certainly forget up our election campaigning work that did involve going door to door and calling people um, in Mackay and in Dixon was actually a really important thing for and a really good discipline for us to do as an organisation. We were very good at talking to our own supporters, that's our political tradition and lifting up the voices of people who identify as progressive and I think it's been good for us as an organisation to go out there and understand people's concerns. But I think it's important to, um, you know, think to think deeply, and we're having very active discussions within GetUp about about economic equality, inequality, and, and economic change. Whether that is the reason for people to choose to vote for parties like Hanson that have, say, banning Muslim immigration as part of their agenda, and I think it's really important to stay true to the experiences of people who would be feeling marginalised and the subject of racist attacks in our country that we're not sidelining that, I think we need to make sure that we're really looking after people and not. I think it's absolutely crucial that we start to address um, fundamental inequalities. If you look at things like privatisation and proper funding for schools and hospitals, there's a deep bedrock of support in Australian society for that. But we also need to be asking ourselves those deep and difficult and dark questions about our culture and about and about race and immigration, which I think are still remain a very important part of the picture as well. Jono, where do you see the next year or two going um, in local politics? Local politics in Brisbane is a funny thing, because at the moment we have a city council that has 19 LNP councillors, five Labor, one Green and one Independent. So it's very conservative council, um, which is kind of anomalous, because I would argue that at the moment there's probably a greater appetite for social change and political change in Brisbane than I, I think there's been in the last 15 years. Now, obviously, I'm in a little echo chamber of lefties who also want to see political change, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's really palpable. When, even when you go out door knocking in the outer burbs, like everyone's frustrated, everyone wants something different. They haven't just quite pivoted towards what that is. So I think at the local level, um, maybe there's almost a lag in some senses. Like, 
I think me getting elected probably was reflective of, reflective of that disenchantment with the political status quo. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would imagine that at the next council election, the pendulum will swing heavily the other way and we might end up with like a Greens Labor majority on the city council, um, which will be an interesting time because it would mean that suddenly there's this progressive agenda being implemented at the local level, which will then filter up to state politics and federal politics. And John, do you, do you think if, if the predictions of the rise of, of uh, the, the non-major parties and specifically One Nation's name has been mentioned a lot in the context of the, the forthcoming uh, state election, uh, does either of the uh, LNP or the Labor, the, the two, have anything particularly to fear from them, do you think? I wouldn't call it an existential threat, but I think that, um, and the recent federal election bears this out, it's certainly uh, increasing instability and it's making it harder to confidently form majority government. If you look at the composition of the Senate crossbench, the kind of disparate, um, far-flung ideas and views that you need to kind of meld together in order to pass legislation now makes it a particularly tough task. And I think that it kind of, it, in a sense, becomes self-reinforcing because if we have another parliament, much like the last one, where there's a lot of blocking, where there's not a lot of action, there's a lot of gridlock, um, that increases frustration towards the major parties and in turn you'll see more third party support. So I think that um, what Evan was saying, there's a lot of truth to that basically there's a very substantive difference between a minor party where they're going to ride high on a few single issues and a party which has a credible platform which addresses all the key planks of government and administration, basically. So I think that um, the Labor Party in particular is at a bit of a crossroads where there's kind of the flirtation with the identity politics, the green left, the environmentalism, and at the same time, they're kind of getting tugged back to their working class roots, the kind of old Labor right that, um, yeah, Bill Shorten arguably, to some extent, does represent. So I think that they are existentially probably at a crossroads, some, something that's gonna need to be reconciled perhaps in the next term or two. But I don't think the major parties are at risk of extinction just yet, but I do think the political atmosphere is making it harder and harder for them to appear competent, to appear functional. And I think that uh, the fragmentation of demographics and population, basically it's hard for them to court together enough people to really claim that sort of 51% they need to claim a governing majority. Can, can I just interject really quickly though? It's, it almost sounds like, because to me, a, de, a, a parliament where lots of minor parties are debating and, and negotiating on the floor of parliament and it takes a while to get stuff through, that's a healthy democracy. A democracy where you just have one party that has the majority and can kind of force through its agenda for three or four years, that's less healthy and less constructive. Fair enough, but is it practical? Yeah, I, th I mean, you look at the, the Gillard, it, like that period, while like widely criticised by the commentariat in the media, they actually got some decent legislation through. And I would, I would tend towards the view that the more diverse voices you have represented in Parliament, um, the healthier the debate, the more alternative perspectives and ideas will push forward, and probably you'll end up with better policy, even though it would be painful. I think the issue with that is, in theory, I certainly agree, but if you look at the type of people who comprise the current crossbench, all their incentives tend against good faith negotiation. They have every incentive to pull stunts, to increase their profile, to basically um, build a brand out of themselves. And someone like Jackie Lambie is a really good example of this. So I don't think that these people are these kind of um, 
and I probably am more talking about the current crossbench than the last one, they're not necessarily, you know, these reasonable arbiters of what's good, reasoned, well thought out policy. I think that they are more alive to the political crosswinds than the major parties are themselves. And I think if you look, the Nick Xenophon party, they're kind of for everything but stand for nothing. And it's very hard to pin them down to define public policy positions on a lot well, of the key I issues think, that define the business of government. I think Senator Xenophon's cousin is here. <laughs> I, heard, I heard an ooh. Look, actually, that was a good cue. We're going to throw it over to you pretty soon, ladies and gentlemen, but I just want to have one more topic up here before we do, because I think I've got off the hook pretty easily. Uh, most of the political parties, one way or the other, have had a, a bagging from somebody or else up here, uh, the media. Surely we're to blame for, for a lot of the, uh, the ills in the political debate. I certainly heard that in the last two uh, federal elections. I don't hear it as much in state and local politics, but in federal politics, I hear the media being bagged a lot for the way the media portrays the political debate. So uh, you all get 60 seconds each. What, what, what's the media doing wrong in portraying uh, Australian politics at the moment? Look, I've always had the view that, um, you know, politicians who blame the media is like a ship captain's blaming the sea. Um, you know, look, um, the, the issue is that I don't think people are taking their cue from the media um, like they have in the past. I think if you look at the 2015 state election, um, you know, the daily paper here in Brisbane ran a strong line against the Labor government, but ended Labor opposition, but ended up winning. I think that those um, people are sourcing their information from a much greater variety now than ever before. Um, but I think... Um, How you know, dare they? But I think... <laughs> Stop the key, that, would you? The key for, you know, for particularly major parties, but also the media, is trying to communicate about politics to people who aren't inherently interested about it, um, trying to make a... Um, a clear message for pe to engage people is a constant, difficult task. What do you think, Ellen? I think Evan's being really nice about our daily paper. I mean, it's disheartening to see the kind of angle that they consistently take, not just in relation to the current government, but also organisations like mine. I think there's been a campaign... Your fundraising goes up every time they bag you. <laughs> <laughs> we did do a very successful and controversial ad about the Courier Mail a couple of years ago that people might remember. Um, but, you know, I think they don't reflect necessarily the, um, the values of the community at all. And I think, you know, it's a real shame that we don't have a better debate. And that we do have such a monopolised media within this country, I think, is a, real, is a real shame. Because I think regardless of... I do agree that people are taking their information from elsewhere, including organisations like mine. Um, but, you know, there's certainly been a campaign in the part of the Courier-Mail and it's continuing now and it's obviously reflected now within the government to, to say that NGOs are doing the wrong thing by participating in the political process, but that's actually the vehicle for a lot of people to, to do that and to remain enfranchised. I guess to defend the Courier-Mail in their absence, as uh, they, they would probably say, even if they disagree with um, your depiction of, of what they say, are they still saying it in a way that's, that's fair enough? Is, is, like, is a newspaper entitled to take a position? I wasn't saying that they're not entitled. No, 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 probably more. I think they should. More, Sorry, but I think um, the days of a newspaper editorial delivering election outcomes yes. are gone. No media outlet has that control anymore. Yep, yep, fair enough. Um, it's probably, probably more devil's advocate back to, to what Ellen was saying. Is the Courier Mail not entitled to say, that's what we think, you know, like it or lump it, we're just putting it out there, this is, this is what we think. 
I mean, I, I think it's as I, I think it's hard when we have such monopolised media ownership in Australia. So there's no and, alternative and view, is the main. Absolutely, and they yeah. don't express an alternative okay. view within their own papers. And you know, if you look at but the budget like for the ABC is more than what News Corp their operating budget is, is for Australia. It absolutely is. Yeah, I'm not getting much of it. But if <laughs> <laughs> so, it's not monopolised whatsoever. Right. Um, media, Jonathan. I want to hear what Ellen was saying before she got cut well, off. Well, I actually just wanted to reference, for example, like the way that the the Murdoch Press has talked about the coral bleaching, which I think is a really important environmental um, event this year that's going to define not just the future of that particular thing, but also the tourism industry, which Queensland really relies on. We need to have an informed public debate about that, and I just don't think that we've seen the level of engagement that we need to. This is something that's going to impact on us profoundly as a state, and yet I think you know there's, there's, we haven't got the information out there that we need. Do you wish to say anything about the media, sir? Is that to me? You just I'll just keep it short. I, I mean, I, I tend to agree that the mainstream media is to some extent fading into irrelevance. Um, and partly that's a function of unsustainable business models where they're trying to commodify knowledge in an age when knowledge is cheap and accessible. And particularly with political reporting, journalists don't, uh, they're not paid well enough or there aren't enough of them to do detailed, nuanced political reporting, which results in a, a lower quality of political journalism, which in turn means voters and readers switch off. So. Those of us who do want nuanced political analysis aren't getting it from mainstream media anymore. So we seek other outlets and we stop paying for papers. And meanwhile, it's, there's not enough meat. Like, I, we've all read the media releases that they get put out by a party and then you find exactly that media release reproduced in the paper. And that's because journalists are under really strict time pressures and can't come up with any more nuanced reporting than that. Thank you all. I, I got the impression then that the basic media is bad, but I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, we're going to throw it over to you now, ladies and gentlemen, but just for a bit of um, OHS, just stand up and, and wriggle your arms and legs and just, um, just have a little stretch. And don't stand do, on the broken bottom. Don't, don't go anywhere. Just, um, just, just wriggle around in your place if you feel like it. Just stretch your legs. What we're going to do is uh, we, have a, we have a raving microphone. I'm sorry, I'll say that again. We have a roving microphone. And uh, the, the rules are pretty simple. We would love to hear your question. We don't necessarily want to hear your speech. So if you have a question, we'll be uh, keen to get that into the discussion. So, I believe the, the question facilitators will be ready to go any second now. And my name's Eugene. One of the things that arose over Brexit was the number of people in the UK, particularly young people in London, were very upset with everyone else having voted for Brexit. And in the United States, um, having seen, I think, something just over 50% of the American electorate voted, and then they're out demonstrating against Trump. My, my question is, recognising that in both places the, um, it's not compulsory to vote, but I, I'm having great difficulty understanding why people who are concerned about not leaving uh, the European community or having someone like Donald Trump as president just stayed at home and didn't get out there and do something. And my question is, noting that the disillusionment and, the, and um, distrust, in fact, of so many institutions applies to Australia as well, if you look at the One Nation vote, um, why do people, notwithstanding it's contrary to their interest, not vote or support or take steps to ensure that the result that they seek is actually brought into effect. 
Do you, do you get any sense in your research that uh, the, the number of people voting is, is less, for example? Oh, look, I think um, the numbers there from the AEC show that the number of people um, voting is... The, well, the, the number of people generally is increasing. The percentage of people on the roll who voted at this, at this federal election was lower than all the previous elections. Um, and that there, obviously there's a great unidentified group of people who aren't on the roll. So people are still opting out. To answer the question about why people aren't voting um, you know, in their interest, for most people, politics is in a reasoned, transactional business. People don't sit down and sit with a bit of paper and say, these five reasons are good for, for me and these five reasons are bad for me. People vote, you know, it's an emotional decision where people vote for someone who shares their values, who's going to stand up for people like them, um, you know, and have people who they feel has their interests at heart. There's no, you know, most people don't spend hours weighing up policy documents or getting onto websites and researching. Um, most people have that, and if they don't feel that there's someone who shares their values and looks after people like them, they're probably not going to turn out to vote. But a failure to vote is a big problem in Australia too. Like, the number of people who vote is dropping. Anybody got any other thoughts on that? Well, my personal view is the fact that people will go to the polling booth and spoil the ballot, for me, indicates that voluntary voting might actually be a good idea because what greater freedom than the freedom not to vote? I think our, um, our, the Queensland Greens official party policy might actually... I'm pretty sure it's that we want to have a um, none of the above option on ballot papers, which I think would be really interesting because it would, it would be, allow us to distinguish between people who are like mindfully rejecting what's on offer versus the people who are completely disengaged and don't see the point at all because that's that's we, we're operating in an information vacuum and no one has done enough detailed analysis and on the ground research to be able to say exactly why people don't vote we know like the general trends and what people say oh i don't see the point but we're in complete we have no idea why people don't vote to put it bluntly we can guess but so it'd be a better idea to have an option Keep it compulsory, none, none but have so none of the keep above. Keep it compulsory, but have an option of none of the above. And let's see how many people vote none of the above. What do yeah. people think about that idea? Was, is that, so so put, up, put, put up your hand if you think voting should be non-compulsory. You should, you should be free not to express... Like it is in, in, the, in the UK and the US, that pure democracy includes the right not to vote at all. Is this it, a compulsory vote? It is. <laughs> Actually, if you, if you choose not to vote... In this vote it. about whether you should not have to vote, then I won't know whether you haven't voted because you just didn't understand the question or because... All right, for the, for the sake of the benevolent dictatorship that Marg introduced, I'm ordering you to vote in this vote. Who thinks that uh, voting should be non-compulsory? Who thinks voting should be compulsory but you have an option, like uh, Jonathan said, to put none of the above? And who thinks voting should just be stay the way it is? Interesting. Is is that sort of where you were headed, sir? In your question? Yeah, I was just concerned that people. Sorry, thank you. I'm just concerned that people are they're whinging after the event, and it's we've seen it now. After Brexit, you would have thought that the Americans. I was very surprised by the fact that people, however disillusioned you might be with Hillary. I mean, if you're of a certain uh, 
worldview, you would have considered her to be better any day than Trump. They still stayed at home. Yes. So, so did, did what we just discussed, did that sort of go some way to talking about it, how it applies in the Australian context? Not really. I just think, though, that... that Not really. <laughs> we failed miserably <laughs> there. I, I, I mean, I, 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 think that, that, I think, though, that... that uh, and I start off thinking that voting should be compulsory. I think it's quite clear now that, com that we should be required to exercise a responsibility to our broader society. So I think... I, I think if, I mean, I think what you see in countries that don't have voluntary voting is the motivation of political parties is to appeal to their base rather than to try and get a broad coalition of support. Um, so that's why you've seen, I think, um, you know, you've seen um, people like Trump and the Tea Party before that. Um, they are great at energising that Republican base, but not necessarily reaching out. And that's why you've seen an election where I can't the final figures, but you know I think Trump got 24.6 and Hillary got 24.9 percent of the vote. Like um, you know, so I think those voluntary vote, uh, voting systems make people appeal to their bases. And the same thing happens in the UK. Like um, you know, UK Labor does the same thing where it appeals to that you know strong left agenda. While at the same time, the UK Conservatives appeal to a strong conservative base. Whereas our system encourages people to build a coalition of support, and this is sort of the point that John was making before. For Labor, that means we do have to have a class agenda, an economic agenda for inequality, but also deal with a progressive social agenda. And that, that's a difficult challenge for us, but we have to, that is our coalition, and that's how we try and build our coalition to win, and you know, we'll keep trying to do that. But you could also say, sorry, I mean, this was a point that I wanted to make before, is the fragmentation is also extremely acute in the Liberal Party right now. Mm. I think you're trying to keep the wheels on the ideological bus much more than the Labor Party is. I mean, look at the, the rise of the right within the Liberal Party and the kind of fractures that are happening internally. I think, you know, both parties, and I'd say more acutely the Liberal Party at the moment, are struggling. But what, what policy issues approach. do you think we're seeing those fractures on? Do people, are people want to suggest a few marriage equalities and other ones? Well, the carbon tax was decisively rejected in the 2013 election, so I think that one's fairly dead and buried. Immigration is another one. I, like, I, I think there's clearly splits within the Liberal Party, and even on, even on, um, and with, when you start including the Nationals as well, you have people like George Christensen that don't aren't interested in a particular free trade agenda, and then you have those people that you know might be more fellow travellers with your organisation. So. Yeah, I think immigration is as well pretty settled. I think the offshore processing was again decisively voted for the last direction. John, are you going to say? I, I might just respond to that really quickly because it, it strikes me as rather strange that a party that, um, that can claim a mandate and a resounding mandate for every single one of its policy platforms, when you know, they only just scrape over the line. They might you know, win 55 or 60 percent. And then they suddenly say, well, that proves that we are 100% right about this and 100% right about this. And I mean, that to me is nonsense. But just to jump back on that l conversation that Evan was alluding to, like I sometimes wonder whether Labor makes the mistake of thinking that it has to choose between one or the other or like it has to straddle the line between the two. Because I would argue that, I guess, to put it bluntly, like smashing neoliberalism is aligned with both the working class's needs and concerns about social... Uh, about economic inequality and with addressing issues like climate change and, and social justice issues, like, isn't that doesn't that fix everything? Claire? No, <laughs> um, um, I think uh, you know where um, you know, and that's why I think you know the Greens have traditionally taken a very post-materialist election agenda, and I think that's why a lot of 
um, you know, our election agenda tries to pick up on those issues of um, discrimination and um, social reform, but also, you know, giving working class people confidence that we are a pro-growth progressive party. And we think we can do that. Um, and it's not necessarily a choice, but it is um, how we build our coalition. Like, you know, we unashamedly want to build a broad-based coalition um, that, um, you know, gets us to government. Like, that's why we exist. Shock horror, we're discovering that uh, no party is perfect. Uh, <laughs> shall we move on to the next question? Yes. It seems that major political parties do have a large influence on the debate that takes place. As a, a young person who's interested in politics, I find it very difficult to find out what is being said, because it seems to me that a lot of decisions are made behind closed doors, and then if I watch Question Time on TV, and if I listen to politic politicians when they speak to the media, it seems they've already decided their course of action, and now they're either hurling abuse or or you know, uh, disp dispensing propaganda that they've already locked in behind closed doors. Is there any way that that discussion behind closed doors could be held in a more open sphere? I mean, I'm sure that the Labor Party, the LNP, have very intense discussions about what their policy position is going to be. As, as a voter, can I have access to that, or am I forever to be locked out of it? The last thing I'd say before I see to you guys, Jonathan mentioned that uh, a coalition of multiple smaller parties might get better policy outcomes, and it occurred to me that perhaps under that sort of situation, those policy debates might take place on an open floor rather than behind closed doors. So to the panel, is it possible? Should it be possible? What do you think? I, I think that's a great question. Uh, and having reported on politics uh, since 1937, that is one of the main <laughs> things that I have noticed that for, for the, the structural reasons that, that exist in our political system, the, the word debate is not the correct word to use really in, in, in any chamber because, as you said, and as everybody pretty much accepts, um, party discipline is such that the decision is pretty much made. You, you, you will see, I will defend politicians this way, late at night in some long debates when the clauses of bills are being debated, there is really good hearty give and take and good negotiation across the floor. But usually that's on, on fine detail, on, on basic serious policy that the decision is made. So Evan, how, how do you respond to that point? Um, I suppose the first point is, um, you know, we're a party that is sort of renowned for our internal robust debate. You know, we've got an entrenched factional system that re reflects those differences. Um, but, you know, we're the only m major party that has um, our conferences out in the open. Um, you know, people can turn up to the Labor Party. Chris comes to our conference and sees those inter, you know, robust debates where people give each other frank assessments of their character. Um, you know, they've seen it at a national level. Um, you know, and during the federal election, the, um, you know, the LNP used some of those um, frank debates about um, refugees um, to try and paint a picture of a divided Labor Party. Um, but you know, our process is that we have those frank debates and then settle on a position, because I think. Um, while there is a need for open debate, um, I think the public also expect a unified, coherent government. And the history, um, through you know, uh, the history is that parties that can't hold their show together get kicked out pretty quickly. Um, you know, voters aren't going to cop a government that um, is fighting with itself. Um, so getting that balance right between having 
a strong internal robust debate and then getting on and governing in a way that people can have confidence that we're focused on them, not ourselves, um, is the challenge. It's not unheard of in some countries of the world, I think they do it in the UK, where they will actually telecast the party conferences. No, they do the UK Labor telecast their conference. And this is a non-partisan comment here. This is just pure journalistic entertainment. The Labor Party is more entertaining at their conferences than the LNP <laughs> because they do exchange views with each other and sometimes they raise their voices. <laughs> and so you do see the debate, but then as Evan says, once they get into the parliamentary chamber, then there is no further do you, what do you think about that system, having, you yeah. know, you're re relatively new to the, to the chamber debate of, of politics? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm on, I'm on record, as, and I stand by this, that I actually think the Green State Council should also be open to the media and open to public scrutiny, because I do, like, there are incredibly robust and healthy discussions and debates that happen within those party circles, and, and I think the voter is robbed of that nuance and that detailed debate, but, I, like, I totally agree that if we had a, a broader diversity of minor parties and, and different interests represented on the floor of council or on the floor of parliament, that's where more of those debates would happen. And I would also go so far as to suggest that, I mean, like, part of what the, what the major parties are probably afraid of is this, like, yeah, as you said, the media is like gonna hammer you for being ununited and divided and, and not having your act together. But maybe that's partly because the media is so hungry for an interesting story. And the reason they're hungry for an interesting story is because on other, in other aspects of the political realm, there's actually not that much to report on because ideologically, and I hope I won't offend you, but like in many respects, you, you, Labor and the Liberals aren't that dissimilar on some key policy areas. And so because of that, it's like, okay, well, we've got nothing to report on there because in, in Parliament, they more or, less dis, more or less agree on the big picture stuff. So therefore, when there is any hint of division, then the media piles on. It's like, look, look, they're fighting. They finally disagree on something. But... Yeah, I don't know. It's, it, I, I'm certainly finding that within council, everything is made, all the decisions are made behind closed doors and, and on the floor of council, it's um, completely just pontificating and, and backpatting. Um, and interestingly, today I got in trouble again because I'm pushing for cameras to be allowed in council chambers. So in Brisbane City Council, you're not actually allowed to film the public meetings. You can come and watch in the public gallery and you can read the minutes that are posted online later, but the LNP won't allow... Um, cameras, they won't allow people in the audience to film, they won't allow councils to film their, councillors to film their own speeches. So, um, yeah, certainly at the local level, voters are completely robbed of access to their political system and what, to find out what their representatives are doing. We'll probably move on, but John or Ellen, do you have anything to add on that topic? You don't have to. Oh, I'd just say that um, one of the major ways of fixing what the questioner raised or at least making much better is ensuring that political parties have a genuine grassroots pre-selection process. So the New South Wales Liberal Party is currently doing a bit of soul searching. Their party is far too centralised. Um, the decision about who represents people in far-flung areas of New South Wales, each with their own local concerns, local issues, um, unique citizens in each electorate, those decisions are currently centralised among a few very like-minded, self-interested people. And I think that that is extremely toxic for the representation in New South Wales um, and also for the quality of talent within the New South Wales Liberal Party. So I think this is a comment that goes, cuts across both major parties, that genuine grassroots pre-selections encourages engagement. It's gonna make people who are ordinary people who may have a cursory interest in politics more likely to engage. You're therefore going to get more representative parties. The party membership is going to reflect the broader community rather than just professional politicians or people with 
oversized ambitions, and I think that that would have a really healthy follow-through into the quality of the representation, but also the diversity of views within both major party rooms. I can say one more thing about this, and I feel I can comment on this because it goes to, to the media. It's really interesting the way you said that. You said the decisions are made behind closed doors. And I think Evan made the point, and, and others agree, or maybe to a lesser extent, the decisions, ironically, are made behind not closed doors. They're made behind doors that you can get into. Uh, sometimes it might be hard for the public to get in there. You might need to be an accredited media or, or, or a member of the party, but to a greater or lesser extent, the decisions of the parties are made behind doors that you can get into. How open those, how open those doors are is, is another question. And then to, to put my hand up on behalf of the media and say this is where we fall down, media, use, media used to give much greater coverage to political conferences than we used to. So if there was that debate behind closed doors or behind ajar a doors uh, about the decisions that parties made, media used to give great, greater coverage of it. That's where we have fallen down because um, 20 years ago at a political conference there'd be a lot of journalists reporting a lot of the debates that then feed into what happens in the House. Our coverage of conferences has diminished over the years. And that is because of the eternal catch-22 that modern, modern media is really struggling with. To, is, is, the, is it the job of a journalist to report something that the professional journalist judges is worth reporting? Or is it to report something that we think will put eyes on TVs, ears on radios, or buy newspapers? And that's why the, the coverage of, of nuts and bolts politics like a political conference uh, has fallen down. But it's a very excellent point. But Who's got the... Oh yes. So I just want to pick up on that point you made about who are those doors open to. I think it's a really good one. And to some extent they're open to um, environment groups and NGOs who do put a certain, quite a bit of work into lobbying and meeting with politicians, but also obviously corporate interests do as well. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to be looked at carefully. We've, we've published work today about political donations that aren't declared <coughs> necessarily through our current system, and they can be more than 50% for some parties. So I think that that's something that, in terms of how decisions get made, it's not obviously all that happens out in the open. Who has the next excellent point? Hi. I think that politics has been taken over by some very weird, very extreme issues, and there's a lot of them. It's become very dangerous to talk with your friends about politics. It doesn't matter what party or that you vote for. You start talking with any group of people, there's going to be people amongst them who deeply, deeply disagree and you're going to lose friends. And we are constantly being indoctrinated and abused if we think differently. We get into the voting booths, every single major party, including the Greens, including Get Up, have a multiple issues so that if you vote for them, you are going to be voting for something that you passionately disagree with, and yet you can't vote for something you passionately agree with. Is there any way we could get parties to have core things that are just more basic and put the extreme ones onto single-issue parties? That if somebody really, really cares about that, they can vote for that single-party issue. Can I... Uh I would, I would actually suggest that a better approach would be to democratise the um, decision-making processes within parties and how, how they achieve that, they arrive at their policy platforms. So by that I mean that 
Um, right now, we vote once every four years, and then we have very little control with it between elections. Um, and so we've all been through that probably experience where we, we support 90% of what a party campaigns for, but there are one or two policies that we really don't agree with, but they're the least bad option, so we vote for them anyway. But imagine if on those divisive issues, we, we did have a more robust form of direct democracy. And I'm not, not just talking about occasionally putting um, things to a plebiscite and then all the big decisions still get made by the political insiders and elite. But um, like there are a couple of Scandinavian, Scandinavian countries that allow citizen-initiated referenda. There are a lot of South American countries that have been, and, and townships that have been experimenting with participatory budgeting. These new ways of making decisions that they're not as blunt as direct democracy, I find really interesting. The, the risk with direct democracy where you just put everything to a vote all the time is that that can tend to polarise people. You end up with a lot of people who aren't actively engaged and making informed decisions just clicking yes or no when they get an e email vote. But if you can set up a system where people can opt in and be part of workshops and discussion groups where they're getting across the facts and then having a vote, I think that kind of solves both of those problems in that you're you're getting a meaningful say on your particular issue that you're concerned about, but then you're not forced to support a, an entire platform that you might disagree with some parts of. And John, we're seeing this debate going on right now in federal politics, aren't we, with uh, two issues, uh, 18C and uh, with uh, same-sex marriage. So do you have any thoughts on, on what was put to us then? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, but um, it really just goes to the mode of representation that our democracy facilitates. Um, now, the reality is no matter which party's in, um, all of us are gonna have at least one grievance with something that they do. Um, and so I think that really the question you have to ask is what's going to create a government, gonna create decision making that is the most palatable for the most amount of people. Now, there's a real trade-off between what Jono's talking about with that kind of um, more micro processes, that sort of real consultative approach um, and the sort of imperatives of government and expeditious administration. I personally have a lot of sympathy for Jono's ideas um, on that score. I think they're really interesting. I think that there's a lot of people in this room who find that thoroughly engaging. The reality is the business of running a federal government is big, it's technical, it requires a lot of expert knowledge and I'm not sure about the practicality of it. I think what you're expressing is kind of a design flaw, but it may be the best that we've got. I mean, I think there was an interesting question which was kind of in the background in relation to the marriage equality plebiscite, which was about the role of direct democracy. I think, unfortunately, um, we had a kind of direct democratic instrument, which I think I would generally support actually engaging for a variety of reasons. Um, including those ones that you've raised, but also, you know, understanding where people are at with this particular issue and giving an opportunity for those of us who work on these issues to actually get out and have those conversations. And again, that discipline of getting out and having those conversations. I think it's unfortunate that that was kind of um, a squandered or poisoned by the kind of framework in which that marriage equality plebiscite was proposed, because I think in general that's the kind of thing that we should see more of. And is, Evan, is that a difficulty for any political party that, in, in a sense, they have to be a hold-all for, for all sorts of policies? Look, it is, but I think the question um, presumes that the only political participation is voting. Like, um, you know, I've been, you know, I spent some time as an MP, you know, I, I passionately believe in fluoridation of water, but I have people come and lobby me and say, you know, I can't vote for you because of that, you know, and the political process on those issues continues every day, you know, it's, you know, democracy is not just in a ballot box, it's at the Beanley markets on a Saturday morning 
people giving you their frank view of the world. Um, you know, for politicians, there's one of the few jobs in the world where everyone has a right to tell them how to do their job. So, you know, it's not just about voting, it's also about persuasion, um, you know, and democracy works when you've got more people on your side of the argument than the other. And, and Madam, can I ask you, can I just ask you to elaborate on something? This is a devil's, devil's advocate question from me to you. Who would decide what are the, what you mentioned as perhaps some of the extreme issues as opposed to a core issue? Is, is there not a problem there that who would make the decision about what's a core issue and what's not? Mm. I don't know that I necessarily have an answer, but I guess you can see by my hair, I'm old. And I don't remember having the problem with politics in the olden days that we have now. Like, it's become awful to vote. Like, the issues that you go in and you know that if you put a tick in that box, you are going to vote for something that is just absolutely, utterly, deeply, profoundly something you don't want to vote for. And that didn't used to happen. I mean, it was a discussion between maybe Liberal and Labor, and you could all smile and talk to each other afterwards. Now, you can feel So, it, so it's not, not just what you're voting for, it's, it's the tone of debate. It's what you're voting against. But like, you put those things, there'll be some policy in a party yes. that you don't vote for that party because everything else you might just yes. love, but you you know, you have to vote against that party. But did I also hear you say that you, you, that it's a much more unpleasant environment in which to be having conversations about these things, that, that there's more flack and heat? Oh, it, it, it's... Do, do we agree with that? Is that utterly, completely toxic. Do you, totally. Do, if do you just, say what you think, mm -hmm. you are totally, completely abused, alienated and everything right throughout the whole discourse zone. Thank you. That's a wonderful opinion and very well put. Do, you, do we all have any, any feelings about whether there is a, a, a more uh, toxic feel to, to public debate at the moment, or has is, or is it always been a bit frantic? Uh, I think new technology has meant that it's made it easier for people to put their views to the world more quickly, um, and it means that we um, deal with opinions that we don't agree with more often. Um, and, you know, I do think, like I see... Um, some are particularly on Twitter, but to a lesser extent Facebook. Um, you know, people uh, you know, having, um, you know, people uh, not taking other people's views seriously and insulting them. You know, um, you know, we've got to, ex you know, for when people have different views, we need to listen to them, not to insult them. And unfortunately, um, you know, you don't persuade people by telling them that they're wrong. You know. Um, cool. you know well, you can tell them they're wrong, but don't abuse them while they're doing oh, so. Look, no one, like, um, you know, I've spent lots of time trying to persuade people to vote, um, and you don't do it by saying, look, I've heard what you have to say, but I actually reckon you're wrong. You know, you've actually got to, um, you know, find what it is that mm. is the concern underlying it and engage. Um, you know, it's, it's essentially the, you know, the One Nation um, issue. Like, people who go out there and, um, you know, criticise One Nation voters and bag them, um, only reinforce their view that no one's listening to them. The job is to actually listen to what they have to say and understand what um, drives that motivator. What do you think, Ellen? What's the tone of debate like these days? Well, I mean, 
I guess I just reflect on my own personal experience and I was living in Mackay working on coal mining and particularly the Adani coal mine which is a very controversial project throughout Queensland but particularly in Mackay that considered that they were going to get jobs from it and the local member George Christensen who I think was existing within his echo chamber of his Facebook page and his Twitter feed was ramping up the vitriol against the Mackay Conservation Group that I was working for and against me personally, he got up in Parliament and said that I had to leave Mackay because I was creating all this division um, and the local, this was reflected in the local paper. My experience on stalls, talking to people, being recognised in the street was absolutely, if people disagreed with me, they weren't attacking me in that way. I, I think that, unfortunately, the level of our debate up there, in my experience in doing groundwork and speaking to people is that people are, um, that when you have that human element, they will still mm. respond to that. And I think it's really unfortunate that those values of basic compassion and decency aren't actually reflected in some of our leaders and in, in the media. That's right, because they didn't follow the rule that I said at the start of tonight, to be nice. <laughs> what do I'm, you chaps think? I'm reminded of that quote. I can't even remember who to attribute it to, but like, um, they only call it class war when the poor fight back. And I feel like that's part of, like, um, politics has always been screwing over people and people have always been frustrated with some of the outcomes, but now some of those people have more of a voice and are um, better able to articulate their experiences within the mainstream. So, I mean, I don't have a long enough memory to know how, you know, whether 20 or 30 years ago debate was more civil or less civil, but um, I certainly feel like uh, for the first time in, in, in a while, the political class is having to defend itself against attacks or criticisms from sections of the population that were previously voiceless. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think, perhaps contributes to it. And I'm, I'm mindful that, certainly I, I experience this a lot, that I'm accused of being divisive whenever I depart from the status quo, but that, that accusation is in, it, itself employed like a weapon. Like, every political party will accuse the other parties of being divisive. Greens included, and consistently assert that, oh, no, no, we're not like that, we're not divisive, you guys are the divisive ones. But that, to me, seems a bit, in, yeah, insincere. Yeah, I certainly think the internet contributes to it. I mean, it's much easier to be big and tough from behind a keyboard and a screen than it is in real life. But I think um, looking from, a, I guess, a younger generation's point of view, one of the things that really strikes me compared to when I talk to older people is younger people today have a real lack of toleration of opposing viewpoints. And a lot of them, I guess, lack the ability to put aside their own prejudices, their own values, and genuinely try to understand and empathise someone who is totally at the opposite end of the spectrum to them. And that can be on any given issue. Um, and what it leads to is this really combative, um, toxic kind of interactions where because you disagree with something that you fervently believe in, you view them as a lesser person and you start to genuflect that on their character and that type of thing. And I think that's really disappointing because it means that a kind of hard-fought argument can't be left as just that and we can be human beings aside from that. Um, and I, I notice, for example, um, just debate, political debates within the university sphere, it very quickly goes from the political to the personal and I do think that that does derive from a lack of toleration. Exactly. When they start pointing out your hairstyle, that's when it gets out of hand. So thank you, ma'am. Core issues versus weird issues and tone of debate. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to, first of all, before I put my question to the panel, just to the young man over here, your question that you asked, 
I was probably just your age when I started to become interested in politics and I was lucky enough to be your age in an era when Paul Keating was treasurer and then prime minister. And he took a young person of your age that I was into a world of policy, not politics, but policy. Educated us over a long period of time about change, about reform, about why we should have it. Small grabs over a long period of time. The media then picked up on a lot of that and, and continue that education. And I think for us, those of us that have got the grey hair, that was a fabulous time to be a young person. So my question to the panel is, to each one of you, where are your visionary leaders? I'm, I'm really cynical of um, hierarchical leadership and even like, you know, everyone gets really excited about Bernie Sanders, but I do think it's kind of weird to have these single figureheads of a movement. And I'm, I'm really inclined towards the idea of a more engaged civic society where we don't actually need necessarily a single visionary leader because everyone's engaged and everyone can articulate their views persuasively. Because um, I, I think certainly what we've seen with Trump is that, it, and perhaps with Hanson as well, there's these cult-like followings that aren't necessarily healthy and don't necessarily lead to constructive debate and discussion. So I, I do wonder whether we actually need those visionary leaders. I certainly think we need vision and we need um, people to continually articulate um, ideas of a better world and what utopia would look like. But I don't necessarily think those things need to be pinned onto a single person. And I would go so far as to say like, that historically the, the Greens had a very kind of utopian vision for society. It was, you know, kind of almost revolutionary and like real focus on environmental sustainability and social justice and reshaping society. And they've moved away from that because partly they apply the Korea, Korea mail test and they don't want to be too extreme. And partly it's because they, they're worried that unless, unless they play sort of pragmatic politics, they won't win enough votes in the short term. But I think there is, there's definitely space and a need to articulate inspiring visions for society. But I don't, I'm really reluctant to say that, oh, we need an Australian equivalent of a Bernie Sanders or a whoever. Like, I, I, don't, I don't like that. It just feels really hierarchical and, and cultish to me. What about you, John? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think when you do look back at prime ministers and political leaders past, um, it is hard not to be despondent about the current crop. Um, something that I guess I take more solace in is you don't necessarily, for me, need to look to an elected uh, figure to derive inspiration or, I don't know, feel better about the world. I think that reading books, watching TV shows, that type of thing, exposing yourself to the broadest range of lifetime thinkers possible, that is, is I guess, a way of filling that void. Um, I do think, though, that within both major parties that there are certainly a number of rising stars who might surprise people in the upcoming years. Um, so I wouldn't maybe think that the current crop are completely useless, but I think that people need to maybe s stop expecting to kind of get their life idle from federal politics and maybe look elsewhere. Do you want to name any names? Any rising stars? Uh, I think Christian Porter is extremely talented. Um, Tim Wilson, the new MP for Goldstein, I think he's got a lot of potential. Okay. What about you, Ellen? And what do you think about visionary leadership? Well, I mean, I think and hopefully this is reflected in people's experience of our organisation, it's not about proposing, like Jono says, single visionary leaders. But I guess, you know, when I think about leadership, I think about someone like 
Phil, who's probably one of our more active volunteers, drives in an hour from um, Gold Coast Way, Logan Way, to do phone banks here in New Farm and call people up, um, you know, between the construction jobs that he has, because he's really passionate about inequality, about climate change and about immigration. Um, and, you know, in his own life, um, he had a disabled child and set up a disability organisation for other parents. It was very grassroots and person to person. And now he's committing his time and coming in to volunteer for Get Up and to help get change on those issues that he really cares about. And there's countless stories like that within our organisation. So not, a, not necessarily a public figure, but... But the real who, soul yes. of, the, of, mm. of politics yes. and of civil society, and I think this is really an engine room of how we get change, and I think these people don't get the recognition that they deserve. Um, I think it's really, um, it's really hard for visionary leaders to be recognised in their own time. I think um, your example of Keating, for example, like, um, you know, I think in hindsight he's judged as visionary, but you know, we all remember that you know, the 1996 election, the people of Australia kicked him out unceremoniously. Um, I think people will look back in time and see the time of the Gillard government as an incredibly visionary government with some major reforms. You know, um, carbon, carbon tax, um, you know, NDIS, um, you know, a whole range of reforms that everyone had said was too tough that got through a minority parliament. Um, but despite, I think in retrospect, people will see that as visionary. Um, but at the time, you know, let's, you know, you know, the Gillard government ended up being considerably electorally unpopular and resulted in a, you know, a, you know um, resounding victory to Tony Abbott in 2013. Um, you know, I think it's easier to judge vision um, in retrospect, and I think there have been some visionary leaders. You know, and I, from the conservative side of politics, I suspect conservatives probably see John Howard as visionary. Um, you know, I don't, but that's you know, where I come from. But you know, I think. Um, you know, we should give them a bit of credit. Like, people have driven massive reform agendas and in hindsight we'll look back and see, um, you know, NDIS as, um, you know, two people with a disability, what Medicare was in the 1970s. Do you see Shorten as an inspiring leader? Um, I do. Um, I do. But I think, again, you know, like, you know, he is the person who got the NDIS. Like, the NDIS started by people lobbying him and him pushing that as an agenda through the ALP. Like, you know, I think um, where, um, what you see at the moment, I think you, you before said you see Labor and the LNP as the same. I think... Um, no, I don't the, think they're the same, but I think, but yeah. similar. I think you've seen the major parties move apart in the last few years like never before. I think the LNP has become more conservative and the ALP has moved to a much more interventionist economic policy um, than before, and I think Bill reflects um, that um, you know a more um, you know um, you know a more interventionist economic policy on the left than um, previous um, ALP leaders has, and I think you're seeing a, a more of a polarisation of those parties than before. Yeah, they're worlds apart on like border protection policy as well. I've noticed that. Anyway, on the topic of inspiring <laughs> leadership, on the question of inspiring leadership, here's a thought too. I think one of the problems is that our leaders are not getting enough time to prove that they're inspiring leadership. And I think your point about um, people being seen in hindsight is, it relates to it as well. <clears throat> I think that because we turn over our leaders so quickly these days, for one reason or another, very few people, are, I think, in life are just brilliant at being the leaders the, the minute they get in. So sometimes they're in there for pragmatic reasons, they just happen to be there, and they grow into the job. 
And I think, that, I think that happened in John Howard's case. I think it probably happened in, in Paul Keating's case. And I wonder if because we're rapidly turning over leaders at a rate of knots, none of them can grow into their, their full potential uh, to become visionary leaders. Um, I think the expectations of members of parliament has changed significantly. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my mother's uncle was a member of parliament um, for the National Party at that stage. Um, but, um, you know, he turned up to town once a year and we had a big meeting in the town with scones, with jam and cream, and everyone said what a great, great bloke he was. Um, you know, 25 years later, I was an MP, and if I wasn't down at the Tenemira shops on a Sunday morning to answer people's questions, I was, you know, off, you know, on some junket, apparently. Like, I think the expectations on politicians now mean they're no longer considered to be parliamentarians. They're now expected to be parliamentarians, the local ombudsman, service provider um, and local candidate all at the same time. You know, we, the traditional role where, you know, John Curtin was Prime Minister and attended his electorate three times in an entire term. If he did that now, a local MP would be crucified. Mm. Um, so I think that there is changing expectations and I think um, you're right, there's also, um, uh, I think the other thing, um, Tony Abbott becoming opposition leader in 2000 from memory, um, I think he ha um, has remade the role of opposition leader in this country and in our country's history has been the best opposition leader the country's ever seen. Absolutely ruthlessly political, smashed up, you know, two prime ministers. I think you're really onto something there with the changing expectations of political representatives and I'm mindful that like even at the local council level, I'm, I'm a local councillor but I have 30,000 residents in my in my electorate so everyone has this expectation of oh i can go talk to the local councillor about my little problem but if thirty thousand people were all seeking that kind of access and time there i wouldn't actually have any time to get anything done and maybe that connects as well back to this idea of um the need to decentralize power because part part of the problem is that people are expecting their mps and their councillors to advocate for them when they have a problem with their stormwater drain or when their school isn't getting funded for the new air conditioner or whatever um, because the bureaucracy has been so hard to access now, like you can no longer, it no longer feels like you can ring up the government itself to get help, or you try and you get knocked away. So instead people seek out their, their local or state MP to help with that, um, to navigate this increasingly complex and inefficient bureaucracy. And therefore they can't become great statesmen. And I think it's a great point, madam, and I, and I think that there's a few things going on there. I think it's got to do with time, and it's got to do with expectations, and it's a very, very interesting point. Yes. Hi. Um, it is said that uh, politics is the art of the possible. Um, is there a more inspiring statement that we could use to define <laughs> the political process? Does possible sound a bit um, mere? It's so defeatist, isn't it? No, sorry, you go, Aaron. Uh, I mean, I think um, uh, the Labor Party um, has always had a view to oppose what Gough Whitlam called the purity of impotence, that um, you know, having a, a view that um, is um, entirely, um, you know, satisfies your base but doesn't bring you a coalition of support is of no value to the people you represent because you're not able to deliver that reform. Um, you know, so you know, trying to um, get um, a policy platform that delivers your ideological agenda in a way that brings people with you is the challenge. Um, I think where the real challenge of the possible is for politicians to persuade rather than respond. 
And I think there's an obligation on politicians to go out there and win the case to bring people with them, um, rather than say that's too unpopular, it can't be done. You know, um, for instance, like we've recently legislated to um, remove 17-year-olds from adult prisons and put them into um, um, youth detention. Um, for a long time, that was seen as something that was too hard, the public wouldn't cop. Um, you know, once you put the case, you know, it was an election commitment of ours. Once you put the case, people had to think about it and were prepared to back it in. You know, we got to the point where the Courier Mail was saying we should hurry up and do it. Like, um, you know, the art of persuasion is out there, um, and I think the trick is for politicians to um, be confident enough to bring people with them, rather than rely on, um, you know, telling people what they want to hear. And I, I do, I do think the important ingredient there is uh, broadening the parameters of debate about what's considered possible, because I feel like at the moment. So many things in Australia are off the table. Any suggestion of, say, a massive increase in public housing investment or, you know, rapid and significant shift to renewable energies, it's just seen as, oh, it's too hard, you can't, you can't do it, we can't afford it, just to me seems really, really limiting. It's like we've re restricted our imaginations to the point where we can only imagine small incremental changes and that anything else is considered too hard and too complex. So I take what you're saying, but I just wonder whether we should be a bit more adventurous and, yeah. Redefine what, what is possible. Exactly. What do you think, John? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably a bit more skeptical. I think that um, realistically a big challenge that Australian politicians face is managing the electorate's expectations. Um, I think that it's very easy for politicians to say things which, you know, motherhood statements which are in the abstract easy to agree with but when the rubber hits the road are hard to deliver when you have a government with limited resources and unlimited claims on public money. To take a small example, what Jono just raised about a rapid shift to renewable energy, um, in the abstract, I would hasten to say that most people in this room would think that that sounds like a great idea. Even what the Labor Party is proposing with a 50% renewable energy mix by 2030, I believe, it's estimated that that will cost somewhere in the order of $100 billion. Now, I didn't do those sums that so people might disagree. People might say it's less, it's more. But the sort of, I guess, the point blank issue here is how would the political system fund that? Would it be through debt? Would it be through increased taxes? And that's where it does become difficult. So you're so saying sometimes we're putting the shooting for too high a target? Not necessarily, but I think when we talk in the art of the possible that we people keep a cool head and we're pragmatic because... It's easy to be for something, but everything has a trade-off and it has a cost, and I think that that's something which isn't acknowledged often enough. What do you think, Ellen? What should, what should the theory of politics be to be more inspiring to us as a, as a race? Well, actually, a journalist said to me once that um, Get Up was like an affair. You know, you, you do your donation and you get your little good feeling, but it's actually the marriage of politics. Um, and then the hard work that is put into a relationship. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, and I think, you know, I certainly think that there's a role for NGOs and between um, political, like, between elections to be having those kind of, like, long-standing affairs, possibly. But I think <laughs> if we're talking about what's possible and what's necessary, I think that the time for us to see politics as purely what we are going to be choosing is the window for that is closing. 
there is an environmental crisis that's actually unfolding right now and is going to place all sorts of limits on the decisions that we can make and the kind of world that we live in. And I think even for people like me who work every day on climate change, we are all in a state of active denial about that reality. And so I think the question of what's possible will be start to be defined by the physics of our lived reality. And I think that's something that we are starting to see right now and it's simply going to become more acute over coming decades. And the question of what's considered pragmatic as well. Because, um, like, like, it is reckless. It is reckless and radical to be doing so little to address climate change at the moment. And we frame that as, oh, it, it would be reckless to spend big and take on massive debt to fund infrastructure to shift our, our energy mix. But actually, it is so dangerous to, to do so little as we are now. And it's, it's interesting as that our current approach is defined as pragmatic, pragmatic and incremental change, when really I would argue that... Yeah, but anyway. the, but the, broader, the broader philosophical point that you raise, Madam, is whether we can redefine politics as something more than simply the art of the, art of the possible. Interesting, interesting. We're going to get you away before 8 o'clock, uh, so we have about uh, 10, 15 uh, minutes left to go. Does, um, yes? Is this on? Oh, fantastic. Um, I guess uh, we're here to talk tonight about the rise of minor parties and what I saw for Queensland was significantly the rise of one nation, uh, particularly with that federal election result. As a young person, I've benefited a lot from the really culturally diverse society we do live in, but I'm growing increasingly terrified of some of the trends along the world, but also in Queensland. Um, given that rise of xenophobia in the state in which we live and love, um, I'd really hate to see a whole range of xenophobic policies or an increase in the balance of power on that um, because, as I said, I've really grown to benefit and I love this society in which we live in because of its diversity and, of course, halal snack packs. So I guess I wanted to ask the political professionals here tonight, how are you going to really try and tackle that problem to ensure that we still have a really culturally diverse, um, you know, really culturally diverse our society heading into 2016, 2017 rather, state election. Can I just contextualise the question a, a little bit, if I may? I'm interested that you use the word terrified because that, that's a word that I've heard a lot, uh, not just here, but in, in, in the US recently. But Evan, I know from experience of reporting on this and, and from what something you said earlier, what the, 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 the current parties are saying more about One Nation these days is let's listen to them, let's, let's talk to the, the people that support them. So you're steering, you're steering away from words like, like terrified. So just with that, with that bit of context, can we just keep going with that, uh, that yeah, thought? Yeah, look, I think the key to um, beating One Nation isn't to be One Nation, and I think that's a really key starting point. Like, Labor won't step away from, a, you know, backing a multicultural Australia. But at the same time, no one votes for one issue. Um, you know, there are other issues which people are looking for government to do something for. And I think, um, you know, our job is to go and listen to those people. I think telling those people that they're wrong isn't the start. Like, um, you know, I think um, there are people who are concerned about our, our country becoming, um, you know, people in those situations who are concerned by economic change and they're concerned by cultural change and they feel that the country they live in now isn't the country they were promised um, when they were growing up. And there's a job to do for politics to engage with those people, but it's definitely not to appeal to those concerns. There's, um, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, 
if you start doing that, you'll have to wonder why you're in the show <laughs> um, from the start. So, look, you know, our job is to go listen to those people. Look, let's... Um, again, we shouldn't overstate Hanson. One, there's always been a strong third-party vote in Queensland. Um, you know, the election before, it was CADA. You know, sorry, in 2015, it was Palmer. In 2012, it was CADA. Um, you know, there's... The, that group has been there. Um, and we've been through it before. Like, we went through the 1998 parliament with 11 One Nation MPs. And, you know, like, Labor started the community cabinet process in 1998 to go out there and listen to these people and made sure you know, ministers were getting a frank view of the world from people on the ground. Um, and that process has become so entrenched that when Campbell Newman won in 2012, the community cabinet process maintained. I mean, they're the sort of things that you do, not, um, you know, the, the, uh, rather than trying to be one nation. I don't think there's any value in that. No. Do you think it's terrifying? I absolutely think it's terrifying, and I think it's it's you know, very heartening to hear um, Evan talk about not being the... the um, to not being one nation. And I think it's also really fantastic the way we're having a discussion about inequality and economic inequality and the drivers for people feeling alienated and marginalised. And I think I agree with you that I think the Labor Party's taken a more interventionist position on the economy in recent election than they have previously. And I think there's a, the parties are moving apart on some of those key issues. Um, but I also think it's important not to reduce the one nation phenomena to economics either. And I think what we saw... Um, the first time around, and I was much younger than I am then, was two things, and I think we you know, need to keep these in, in our head, is that the Pacific solution, the offshore detention solution, temporary protection visas were one nation policies before they were liberal policies. So I think that there's a real, and you know, um, one Nation has been celebrating the similarity between liberal and one nation policies on immigration. And so we saw one way that One Nation was marginalised last time was through the incorporation of some of the worst parts of their agenda, and they're now a bedrock of Australia's immigration policy, and that's something that we should all be very concerned about. So I think that's a real risk, and I think that, yes, there's no point pillarising and demonising people, but I think the idea that somehow we have to be very open to that is, is a risk. Last time around, there was also a very strong anti-racist movement in response to Pauline Hanson, particularly in Melbourne, where I was at the time, and I think... Here at Get Up, we're taking a lot of time and we've employed people to work on racial justice and to think about how we can raise up the voices of people of colour <clears throat> at this particular point because we need to be recognising that it's... Like, there's particular experiences of racism that are heightened in Australia now. We need to make sure that we are looking after people um, in this difficult time. So that's certainly something that, that we're working on. So the broader question is interesting too because we talk about the rise of minor parties. Uh, Evan makes the point that to a certain extent, it's not a rise, it's just a, a, a different flavour each time. But in the context of, of the question, uh, what, what do, do you think, uh, John, about the, the, the prospect of the rise of One Nation? And let's put it specifically at the next state election, for example. Yes, yeah, certainly. So I think that... Um the, there's a lot of a lot of hyperbole about how this has exposed this dark undercurrent of Australian racism, and I think that we really need to pause before we ventilate that view uncritically. I think Australia, if you look at our capital cities, has a far greater proportion of people born overseas than Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and New Zealand, and we've rightly been called the world's most successful multicultural society and I think as someone who's lived in three different countries now 
is probably a well-deserved moniker. Um, I think that, as the election of Donald Trump shows and Evan rightly points out, that if you simply point at the One Nation crowd and call them mean-minded bigots, you actually fuel their fire. Um, I think if you, it's interesting if you break down Queensland and the One Nation voting patterns, um, electorate by electorate, and even delve within that. Um, the places where the One Nation vote was high was places where you only look at the raw data and you can see there's a real sense of desperation and despair economically and socially. Areas in Townsville where there's upwards of 25% youth unemployment, where the media's reporting on record ice usage among youths. I think if you think about that, 25% of young able-bodied people are neither in education or working. I think that's a social tragedy. And I think if you look at these people, they do look at the two major parties in the system with just utter cynicism. And for them, it's a really easy, low-cost choice to go with something radical because for them, the, t uh, the, the status quo hasn't served them very well. So the opportunity cost of shifting to someone like Pauline Hanson is particularly low. And with her, um, as we sort of discussed tonight, because someone cast their vote for her doesn't mean that they would subscribe to everything she says. But talking to people um, who I would never have guessed who have re revealed to me they did vote One Nation, a really kind of common thread that I've noticed is people go, well, at least she calls it as she sees yeah. it and she's not kowtowing to some master from behind the scenes. And so that just the forthrightness of Pauline Hanson's expression and that kind of authenticity has a lot of appeal. Absolutely, there are racial elements to it, but I think that um, a lot of that comes more from fear than hate. I think a lot of people who aren't necessarily educated about issues of terrorism, um, Islamic immigration, that type of thing, it's very easy to see big headlines and kind of form an irrational narrative in people's heads that are, isn't actually borne out by fact. And so that's why I think that productive conversations, factual conversations, rather than lampooning and pillaring people as low information voters is probably the best way forward. I'm, I'm mindful at, um, at how little discussion there's been about First Nations sovereignty and um, discourses around Aboriginal peoples and their rights. And I'm like, when you think about the first rise of Hanson and how damaging that was to um, policies and um, uh, anyway, I could, I, I'll, I'll leave that there for a moment, but um, just also recognizing that while, while Hanson on some level and the rhetoric she legitimizes and, and the way she drags the debate to, to the right is problematic, we need to acknowledge that both the major parties have been um, implicated in some pretty racist policies over the years. And I, I hope I don't offend anyone by saying that in many respects, the Labor and the Liberal parties have done far more damage to um, people of colour, to First Nations peoples, to, to migrants than, than someone like One Nation or Hanson could be accused of. Like that, there are, there are serious systemic racist issues embedded in our mainstream political landscape that no one really wants to talk about. I'm not just talking about refugee and border protection policy, I'm talking about the way we treat foreign workers, I'm talking about the, the ludicrously expensive um, costs of getting your family over here and like I've heard figures, anyway, I could go on, but uh, um, putting that aside for a moment, I think part of the answer is, as to how we, we, we respond to this is that advocates of multiculturalism need to articulate a more nuanced vision um, that embraces kind of, some, some theorists call it polyculturalism, so it's this idea of um, a multicultural society where cultural identities are, are not flixed, fixed but are, are fluid and um, constantly redefining themselves and I, I guess I, I mean I'm, I certainly don't 
Like my dad's Sri Lankan Tamil, but I don't necessarily think of myself as just Tamil or just Australian or just Anglo-Australian or just... And um, perhaps in recent years, the debate around multiculturalism and how cultural identities have defi are defined has become too narrow. And we see this sort of... You ask people to define multiculturalism and they're like, oh, it's, it's interest in foods and, and traditional dancing and traditional costumes. And true multiculturalism is far more nuanced and amazing than that. But we've even lost the discursive ability to talk about the values of multiculturalism in a, a truly diverse society. I might also just add that I think it's kind of, um, it's almost a semantic argument to, to try and differentiate between hate and fear. I think there is legitimate hatred out there towards people of colour, towards First, First Nations peoples. And while I completely accept and agree that um, the expressions of that are most obvious in areas that are feeling like economic hardship and people have been screwed over by globalisation and by the ravages of neoliberal capitalism, I think it's important to acknowledge that racism is very, very real and very, very pervasive, um, not just in sort of those lower income, downtrodden areas, but right throughout society. Thank you, sir. Well, at that point, we have actually reached the end of the evening, and it's, I'm very conscious that that was a, a very fruitful and uh, thoughtful last question. And it did raise some very serious and, and sombre issues, and so it should have. But I don't want to end the, note, end the night without uh, trying to find out from our panel and from you, ladies and gentlemen, whether we've achieved some sort of optimism for the way our system is going to handle the rise of minor parties and voter disengagement. Um, panel, where are we headed? Just uh, optimism? We, we, we're going to do good, or are we sort of you know, heading down a slippery slope to doom and disaster? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think um, you can't do the kind of social change work that we all do in our different ways um, without being optimistic. I think it's orientated towards Hooray, the future and, and, and towards hope. And I think I'd just like to, you know, affirm the role of everyone here in this room who's obviously very politically yes, engaged well participating in these kind of discussions um, because we're all deeply involved in it and will into the future. And I, and I very strongly believe between elections and between each other is where politics happens um, as much as in those key moments that we've been talking about tonight. What about you, John? We're going to go good places? Yeah, I think that there's, there's plenty of times in history, even the last hundred years, where everyone said that we're on the precipice of an apocalypse and things turned out better than ever. So I'm reasonably optimistic. Yay. Jono? I'm, I'm really nervous, to be really honest. Um, there are these great challenges before us, and I feel like unless we significantly recalibrate our society and the way we approach both poli the political decision-making system but our economic landscape more generally, that we will mess up on some of this stuff. But what frustrates me is that we here won't feel the burden of this. Like, if, if we fail to achieve any meaningful, significant action on climate change, most people in Brisbane probably are going to be fine. We'll buy air conditioners, we'll build higher walls, we'll deal with the th subtropical th cyclones, but um, it'll be in other parts of the world, it'll be in the global south where people are really, really screwed over by that stuff. Um, at the same time, though, I'm, like, I'm energised by the recognition that the people who benefit from the current system um, and the current exploitation of the environment of, and of poorer workers, okay. they want us to feel powerless. And it's actually, as soon as you start poking back and you realise how fragile the current system is and how open people are to change, you realise that great things are possible. And um, while we have this learned powerlessness and that's constantly reinforced for us that the system's broken and corrupt and there's nothing you can do, Small, small interventions at strategic points can have huge ripples through society and, and that, that really energises and excites me and you see these moments and I guess like the Lady Salento 
um, blockade was one that sort of stands out in my mind where things just out of that came out of nowhere. Um, Ellen was kind of one of the main organizers for that, and it just sort of crystallized, and suddenly people were flooding in from all over the place. And okay. I feel like a so, few more of those so, moments. So you're nervous but energized. Excited. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Bring on the revolution. I found a two two word slogan there. How'd you think about that? That was good. <laughs> um, look. There's got to be hope, and that's why people engage in politics. You know, no one wakes up to engage in politics um, for, um, you know, to um, worry about the past. I think if you've got to start from the, the presumption that the people who participate in politics are doing it for the right reasons. Um, you know, people, um, you know, the pretenders do get found out. Um, you know, it's a long and arduous process. Um, you know, getting a frank assessment of your performance every day as a politician's, um, you know, not necessarily a great experience for a lot of people. Um, people do engage in politics because they want to change the world for the better. We all have disagreements about how that world should be better. But I do think people um, engage in that. I do think there's got to be um, a consciousness, though, about inclusive politics that, um, you know, we've got to make sure that we're not um, politicians and political activists talking to ourselves, but out there talking to a broad range of people who you know, are, are spending their Tuesday night taking their kids to football training at the local PNC or at home watching Netflix. Like, they're the people that we need to engage in the process, and that's where hope comes from. And I'm going to do both. I'm going home now to watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out. You've been fantastic. Give yourselves a round of applause. Um, Obviously, you'd agree with us that tonight was perfect and could not have been better in any way, but if you can think of any way to improve upon perfection or to make a suggestion for what should we do next time, uh, I believe there's a feedback book somewhere on the vent. In the, oh, yeah, there it is, uh, that uh, back corner there. Uh, or just uh, make contact with the staff here at the, the New Farm uh, Neighbourhood Centre for your suggestions uh, for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Evan, Ellen, John and Jono. And see you next time. Thank you.